This is a Stimulus Network podcast. Hello and welcome to For What It's Earth, your weekly environment, climate and sustainability podcast. I'm your host, Emma. I'm here in the studio today with Rosie Maple from the Avon Wildlife Trust. Hello. And this week we're going to be talking about the importance of urban wildlife, so stick around for that. So first of all, who are the Wildlife Trusts? Now, the Wildlife Trusts are a charity dedicated to conservation and the protection of wildlife. And they've got a movement of over, I think it's 46 different trusts across the UK. And one of their key objectives uh, is protecting biodiversity. And they do so by creating wild areas within communities and protecting or regenerating wild spaces in the countryside uh, in which local wildlife can thrive. Now, the Avon Wildlife Trust look over about over 30 reserves in the Avon and Southwest area, which is convenient because I am located in Bristol. Um, and that brings me to today's special guest. Now, you might be able to hear we are part, kind of near a road, but I'm not actually in my usual studio today because I'm joined instead by the lovely Rosie Maple from the Avon Wildlife Trust. Hello, Emma. How are you doing? I'm really well, thank you. Good. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's lovely to be here. Well, thanks very much for having us into your into your offices. No, that's fine. <laughs> um, so, Rosie, maybe do you want to give us a little overview of, of you and what you do? Okay, yeah. So I am a living landscapes officer at Avon Wildlife Trust. The job title always kind of leaves people a little bit confused. So Yes, myself included. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of a living landscape, it's a concept that was um, adopted by all of the wildlife trusts all over the country, that nature reserves and conserving wildlife um, is all well and good in those spaces, but actually we haven't got enough of them. They're not big enough. Um, they need to be of better quality and they need to be more joined up. So it's kind of as a response to habitat fragmentation. So as a living landscape officer and with the rest of uh, the land management team, we really focus on trying to integrate wildlife conservation into the wider landscape. So um, what that kind of means on the ground is things like talking to farmers so you know 70 percent of the land cover in britain is given over to agricultural production wow, much. yeah it's a lot it's a lot <laughs> um so it's all about trying to kind of integrate wildlife conservation into various different farming systems <laughs> So as you just said, uh, although the, the kind of the work that you guys do extends out into the countryside around Bristol and Bath, um, we're here today because we're sat in the heart of Bristol. Our topic is going to be the importance of urban wildlife. Yeah. So although there's heaps that you can do, we're only really going to focus on that for now. But before we get started, as a guest on this podcast, I'm afraid you are subject to our weekly What Have You Done <laughs> segment. So this is where Lloyd and I always kind of sit down and we, we try and you know commit to the things that we're trying to preach on the podcast almost and, nice. and prove that we are trying to make a little bit of a difference and do something good uh so what kind of what one thing do you reckon you've done to be good this week um so this week i have officially ditched my car Ooh. from my commute to work well yes done. um so i live a little little bit outside bristol it's about kind of uh five miles outside um and i'm on my bike every morning now um so well, yeah congratulations for, i know <laughs> quite impressed with myself really, honestly that is great yeah. that's very good yeah no it's fantastic so I've got a lovely cycling uh, along the Avon actually so I go oh, on under the suspension that makes all the difference and in that way so yeah so you know less fumes less contribution to traffic and it just gives me more time outside more 
activity it's more a win-win it's it a win except when it's raining i can imagine but it's a win-win and it takes the same amount of time which is just oh, really? crazy yeah there's so much traffic in bristol yeah, in the morning it's insane I have to admit it is insane well well done that's Thanks. great um <laughs> So my one thing, I, I struggled this morning to think of one, but actually uh, I remembered. Um, have you ever heard of Ecosia, uh, the search yes, engine? Yes, I have. Have you? I think yeah. I'm really behind the mark on this one because I've only just encountered it. You know what? It's it's just a bit of a knee-jerk reaction, Google, isn't it? I think I'm going to have to uh, switch my search engine as well. Yeah, <laughs> right. So basically, for those of you that haven't encountered Ecosia, if, if that's even how you say it, yeah, uh, it's a new so. search engine and it basically works exactly the same as Google or Bing. Uh, you search for what you want and you find pretty much the same results. It's all good. But the difference with Ecosia is um, where Google and Bing run adverts and they make revenue off of the adverts that are placed within your search results. Um, Ecosia take that profit from their adverts uh, and invest 80% of it into planting trees. So it's no different to you. You are finding the same information you would be, mm-hmm. but knowing that that money that isn't even coming out of your pocket is coming out of the advertiser's pocket is actually going to something good. And I think that's great because you don't even have to make a big change. Yeah, it's, it's just like an accidental kind of. It's a, that's it's good. It's uh, the yeah the lazy man's green switch. Well, that's me this week. Yeah. <laughs> the lazy woman's green switch. Fantastic. Um, even things like all of their servers that they use to run the search engine actually run on 100% renewable energy. So tick, that's another good thing for them. Um, and yeah, the places that they plant trees, they always try and invest in communities in places like Indonesia, Brazil, uh, and even in Ethiopia. And they don't just kind of give them the money to plant the trees, they help them um, in the sense that there's this one community I read out where in Ethiopia, they have helped them plant Akai. Is that how you say it? Uh, I believe so is Akai? Acacia? Acacia? Probably, that Maybe. might be it. Akai. It's one of those things that you find in smoothies and nobody ever says out loud right? No I think you're right I think it is Akai. Is it? <laughs> yeah. Somebody tweet us and let us know. Um, either way they've started planting those seeds because when those trees grow they actually increase the soil fertility so those that's a very sustainable way for them to help out that community. Yeah. So that's my thing that I've done and it's super easy for everyone else to do yeah. if you feel so inclined. Well done. Thanks. <laughs> I think yours is a bit more impressive actually. I've been outdone by my guest. Yeah. <laughs> why do we need wildlife in our cities and why do we need to keep our cities wild at heart? Um, I mean, so essentially we need healthy functioning ecosystems outside and inside our cities. So most of our population is condensed in urban areas and Mm. not in the countryside. And obviously these people will obviously rely on healthy functioning ecosystems from outside of the city uh, for food production. Yes. Um, But actually there are loads of ecosystem services that are provided by urban wildlife. So obviously the big one is uh, pollination of flowers and crops um, in our gardens, on our allotments, et cetera, et cetera. But actually there are lots of other kind of not so readily thought of services that are provided by having natural spaces within our cities. So, okay, surprise me. Um, so, I mean, the big one uh, that people are talking about with kind of the onset of climate change pressure um, is flood mitigation. Oh, right, yeah. So if you think about um, a, a green space, you know, a, a woodland, a piece of grassland, um, and when you have heavy rains, the soils and the plants themselves 
uh, absorbing huge amounts of that water. And if you think about if you dug that up, paved it, stuck down some tarmac or concrete or whatever, well, that's a completely porous surface and that water mm. is going to have to run off and go somewhere else. Um, so, yeah, it's really, really important for flood mitigation to have lots of natural spaces, lots of soil, lots of plants around that are going to absorb as much of that water as possible. Um, even the structure of, say, a woodland is going to increase the absorption of water into the soil because it's not all hitting the ground at the same time. Oh, right. Water, okay. will, hit, really water will hit leaves, it'll hit the trees, and, you know, essentially those leaves will hold water, you know, trees drip for long after the shower has stopped. Mm-hmm. It's just that kind of slow trickle feeding of water into the soil it massively increases the capacity um, for our cities to just hold that water and not stop it kind of, you know, backing up into our homes and streets and kind of shutting the function of the city down. And I suppose, it, particularly in Bristol and Bath, where yeah. the River Avon runs directly through the hearts of both of those. The Avon and the Froome, yeah. yeah. You don't want that going straight <laughs> into the cities. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, so, yeah, that's that's quite... I mean, it's not so readily thought of, but that's an obvious direct benefit yes definitely uh, <laughs> that affects absolutely everyone um so another reason that we need loads of trees and plants and decent habitat within the city is to do with pollution mm-hmm. and air filtration so you know plants they filter our air um, and tackle pollutants so uh, one of the sites within the city that most people will be familiar with even if they don't know what the tree is is london plane trees which um obviously as the name suggests are very famous because they line the streets of london um very very fast growing uh they they the leaves they kind of look like sycamores and maples but they're not actually maple trees um but they were i think first introduced into london uh during the industrial revolution when the kind of the smog um and sort of heavy heavy toxic chemicals was kind of covering the city in this soot Mm -hmm. and uh, they realised that they needed to do something because people were dying from poor air quality. Um, So, yeah, London plane trees, they grow really, really quickly. They grow really huge. They're quite easy to manage within the city because you can pollard them. Um, What's pollarding? Pollarding is where you can cut back the branches of a tree to a sort of desirable spread away from the trunk and it will put out new shoots at those cuts so it forms a kind of scar tissue um, which forms a kind of club at the end of each branch and then you can just cut those back on a rotation and essentially it's because they grow so big it's so that they won't interfere with buses and power lines and things like that i've seen those yeah i've seen the club like the club like thing and i never thought about why that happened (laughs) and the fact that that might actually be human led yeah i was just like oh these trees are really interesting they grow to this kind of nub yeah it's a build up of scar tissue oh, wow. so yeah it's a really cool way to to remanage and then that uh you know you're also cutting out any kind of disease um that's in the branch of the tree and and, and it will put out new and healthy growth essentially oh, so brilliant. but i mean the real thing about london plains is that they're incredibly tolerant to pollution which is why we see so many of them so they actually filter out heavy chemicals which get kind of stuck on their bark they've got a very distinctive bark it looks like camouflage pattern like yes. car um and actually those kind of the they almost look like scales which flake off Mm, um and they (laughs) um, but they they do that to actually rid themselves of those pollutants so how clever yeah it's really really clever i'm I'm gonna be thinking about that next time i see them i think you're right you you're you get so used to seeing them wherever you you go they're in most cities you don't even see them but if you if they weren't there we really really would notice i think the you know how that breaks up the outline of 
all the straight lines in cities as Definitely. well. Definitely. I think yeah. most people would just assume and it's it's an aesthetic reason yeah. that they're there, not necessarily <laughs> that there's a whole subgenre yeah. of environmental reasons that well. they're brilliant. Having lots of green space, having lots of parks, local wildlife sites, local nature reserves, and those trees that line our streets they're all creating microclimates. Okay. In the heat of summer, a, a, a street that is lined with trees is going to be several degrees cooler than, than one that isn't. Mm. Um, so, you know, plants absorb heat in a way that kind of concrete, grass and tarmac doesn't, where that kind of radiates it back out. So, you know, that makes our cities a bearable place to be in the height of in summer. In the heat of summer, in yeah. In the heat of summer. But it also probably has implications for the amount of energy that we take to heat and cool buildings as well, ah. which is quite interesting. That's another good point. <laughs> yeah. And then obviously, you know, we talked about pollination of flowers and crops, but I, it always kind of makes me, I, I, I'm always surprised when you, when you look at the research behind like ecosystem services, they always kind of put recreation, cultural values and quality of life as a non-monetary ecosystem service. But it's, it's just that's just totally not the case really yeah um you know so there was a natural england um have recently estimated that 2.1 billion pounds per year would be saved um in averted health costs if everyone had good perceived and or actual access to green space so it's wow, absolutely that is a lot it's a huge amount of money um so i think they base this on the correlation between uh, a person's likelihood to be more physically active if you have access to green space. And, you know, it's kind of, so much of it is commonsensical, but it seems like uh, for developers and governments, you, you need to put it into a monetary thing before people really... It's a shame that's how the world <laughs> works, yeah. Yeah, isn't it? But that's, <laughs> I mean, a figure like that is, is obviously shocking, but hopefully huge. if that's speaking the yeah. language of government will, will have an impact on yeah. their actions. But I suppose it's commonsensical. It's like, if you've got a green space, you know, nat we're animals, we're naturally connected to open spaces, quiet nature, trees, rivers, it's perceived as pleasurable to spend time in it. Absolutely. Therefore, you are more likely to go out for a walk if you have access for that. You are more likely to be active. You are more likely to bump into your neighbours because you are outside. Yeah, true. So there's, there's a community aspect to that as well. Um, so, yeah, recreation and cultural value of nature in our cities is is immense i think just to your health and well-being really. and yeah and precisely you raised such a good point that's exactly one of the things that's been in the news so much recently because uh, scientists are only just really starting to look at the depths at which having exposure to nature and to green yeah. spaces has on our mental health and people yeah. are starting to pay so much more attention yeah um to why we need to be outside and i think that's so hard i think especially like you said with regards to accessibility if you live in a, a dense city center and you can feel really disconnected from the countryside like i know when i moved yeah. to bristol one of the things i loved about bristol was how many green spaces yeah. there are but also that it wouldn't take me long at all to get out of my flat or where I lived to suddenly be in a, a big green space. And I was like, yes, I'm back in the countryside. That's exactly what I banged on about when I first moved here. I just sort of grew up in suburban-ish areas and I never thought I could really live in a city yeah. and subsist. But actually, you know, you get on the M32. If you drive west, you can be in Wales in 45 minutes in the Wye Valley. Exactly. You can be in the Cotswolds around Bath. You can get Bath. straight down to Devon. Yeah, you can get down to Devon, yeah. Chew Valley, Somerset. You're like, Bristol is so well poised. It is. It really it, is. Yeah, <laughs> and it's diverse as well. The landscapes are diverse in different directions. You exactly. Know. Uh, we're not sponsored by Visit Bristol, no. but <laughs> we're clearly major advocates. Yeah. Um, 
but I don't know. We might have just done too good a job at selling Bristol. More people are going to move here and take up our green spaces. (laughs) But yeah, anyway, long story short, I think that's kind of part of the value of what you guys do, ensuring that there is green space in the cities. Yeah, So back to the urban. (laughs) Yeah, so yeah, to really counteract the fact that we're walking to and from work. If we can walk to and from work, in a green space you get kind of almost accidental exposure yeah so you don't notice so much the lack of it promotes it promotes relaxation and it reduces stress and anxiety it's like it's it's not just about dealing with mental health crisis it's about encouraging yourself to have natural better behaviors to deal with just daily stress of life yeah definitely um yeah, it's it's really, really good for your health, I think. Yeah, I read somewhere that it can also even improve your confidence. Yeah. I mean, I, I fully understood relaxation and, and depression. Yeah. Confidence was a quite yeah. a good one as well. So maybe I think it's I need more to go holistic. outside. It's more very more. holistic, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's that quote from David Attenborough that says, people are not going to care about or try and conserve what they have never experienced. One of his greatest quotes. Yeah. I paraphrase that all the time. But it, it, you're, you're so right, it makes, it makes total sense. Yeah. So we need to give people the chance to have encounters with wildlife within our cities because, you know, that's the day-to-day. I was talking to one of your colleagues, actually, a couple of weeks ago, and she said something that really shocked me. She said that in the UK, we've experienced like a 50% loss of hedgehogs in the last yeah. 15 to 20 years. And the first thing I thought was, oh my, like, A what on earth that is mad I'm devastated by that and b I can't imagine a world where one day when I have kids I don't teach my kids to look for hedgehogs under a bonfire on November 5th but there'll be loads of people who just have no concept of that but unless but like you said unless you've experienced the looking for hedgehogs and being aware that they're they're there for you you wouldn't even think about trying to do anything that would help protect them yeah and it just becomes lost from kind of living memory, you know. It's really, really sad. I can't, I can't imagine that at all. It's a sad, oh. it's a bad state of affairs. <laughs> but it's, it's not all doom and gloom. It's not, it's doom not all gloom. doom and gloom. We're doing loads to, um, yeah. You guys are doing loads, but also everyone, everyone listening can do quite a lot as well. Yeah. Maybe first we'll go into um, what people can do in their own homes. Yeah. So, Absolutely. so without having to make the effort to volunteer if they can't spare the time, yeah. if they just want to do some small things, what kind of kind of little things can people do in their own homes? So this is quite a good um, link into, there was a article published in Nature, um, sorry, what was it? Nature, Ecology and Evolution. Okay. That says that um, it's talking about the importance of gardens and allotment spaces within cities for urban pollinators. Yep. So basically what the study has found is that in some cases they were finding 10 times the amount of bees, butterflies, moths and other pollinating insects in gardens and allotments compared to urban wildlife sites, cemeteries and kind of what we think of as more traditional parks. Okay. So that's really quite a staggering... Yeah, that's impressive. That's a really, really impressive and staggering um, amount. And I think that's mainly because of the high density of uh, pollen and nectar resource um, that these insects are finding in people's gardens. So because people are planting flowers. Yeah. So in terms of what you could do in your own home, I really think that increasing the kind of floral availability to things like bumblebees and honeybees um, and butterflies is is just really, really important because although some of these insects will be able to disperse across the city kind of reasonable distances, a lot of them won't. Yes. And they just won't exist in the places, you know, gardens create a very kind of, they're, they're connected. Yeah. They're, they're, they, especially in a kind of a row of terraces like you, you often find in the city, you've got that kind of linear green highway, if yes. you like 
um, the insects can travel along. So if you do have a garden, um, I would really recommend uh, trying to maybe put aside something to create a wildflower bed. Mm -hmm. So it's the opposite of growing vegetables when you grow wildflowers. <laughs> they don't like high uh, high nutrients in the soils. Okay, really? So this is quite a common misconception and oh. why a lot of uh, wildflower beds tend to fail because people think, ah, oh, well, plant, plants like nutrients, um, I must feed them. Um, it's all to do with uh, competition. A wildflower community is very, very complex. You know, it's a mixture of different species of grass, different species of flower. Um, there's lots of fungal associations in the soil there. Um, and the fewer kind of nitrates that are available, um, the more they kind of work together and they, they don't outcompete one another. If you have a high nutrient load, what you'll find is there'll be a few thuggish dominant species that will just overtake oh, really? everything and monopolize that resource. Okay. So um, if you're going to create a wildflower bed in your garden, um, you want to use kind of very nutrient poor topsoil um, and no compost kind of whatsoever. So you want to create a nice bed, turn the soil over, um, sow some wildflower seeds. You can either go and kind of collect this by hand from a local nature reserve, or there are plenty of like wildflower seed mixes online. When I say wildflower beds, I would it, it's better to plant native plants. Um, and although they're very, very pretty, kind of try to steer clear of the kind of poppies, corn cockle, these are known as annual mixes. Okay. Um, and generally you have to kind of re-sow them every year, but um, for, you know, real kind of bee-friendly plants, of you know, kind of lavenders, um, scabiouses, um, marjorams, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, so yeah, nice low nutrients. Um, and it's super low maintenance as well once you've established the bed, right? The main thing that you'll have to do is once, once everything kind of germinates in the spring, maybe just keep it free of uh, weeds. So if you've got any big like nettles coming up or thistles, you know, things that are quite thuggish and are going to shade out the rest of it. It's I got, love calling plants thuggish. Yeah, That's I know. Fantastic <laughs> <image>. <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of them that are. Um, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, I heard someone compare it the sort of the parallel of the complex wildflower grass and community to to humans in terms of like you know in an yeah. age of abundance you know the the few monopolize the resources that there are and actually if we all had less we would cooperate more and all have more quite a poignant yeah i know there. that wasn't that I, i'm stealing that for some, <laughs> i'm stealing that that wasn't mine but i liked it it's a good analogy no that's great yeah. i'm gonna pinch that yeah so yeah in terms of encouraging pollinators into your garden i think that is that's the best thing that you can do. But there are other things, obviously, if you've got the resources, um, creating even small ponds um, is a really fantastic way to encourage kind of aquatic invertebrates, um, potentially even some newts um, oh, into really? your garden. Uh, creating brash piles. So when I say... What's a brash pile? It's essentially compost. But, um, you know, if, if, if you're trimming shrubs or whatever, just kind of pile up that debris. Instead of having a fire, pile up that debris in the corner of your garden. Let it do its thing. Let it do its thing. Let it rot down. It's really important for lots of um, kind of wood bore it, wood eating invertebrates that like that kind of soft rotting wood really really good for fungi you might even encourage some slow worm to kind of uh, might even become a bit of a hibernaculum for some reptiles um yeah so there's loads of things you can do i mean if you don't have a big garden um you know you can achieve the same thing with a window box grow some tomatoes that's yeah that's exactly <laughs> the problem in the, the last French. flat i lived in we had like a very we had a small balcony yeah and it was um i kind of I've missed having a garden but i loved having the, the sort of outside space that a balcony mm. gave 
and it was the same thing it was you know we were trying to you know, we had some like hanging baskets and some window boxes yeah. and we tried to grow a few tomatoes some of them didn't go so well yeah. some of them went, went great there's a lot there's but, no shame if in you know we learn from failure of yes. growing plants <laughs> yeah but it was the kind of at the very beginning the balcony looked very sparse and just yeah. had loads of like tubs of of, of soil yeah. but by the summer we would have bees on the balcony yeah. when we were having breakfast yeah. and I just thought that was fantastic that particular road didn't have an awful lot of greenery on yeah. it um, and it, it's just so important to have even small spaces like a hanging basket where if it, an exhausted bee or an exhausted pollinator yeah. that's trying to move through the city needs to take a break yeah. it can and it can it can eat some more nectar and it can get its energy back yeah. and can continue that journey um, but now I have a now I have a small garden, and we've actually rather ashamedly we've left a uh, a paddling pool out for quite a long time, and it now basically resembles a pond. Amazing, and we get frogs, <laughs> yeah. and it's fantastic. <laughs> In a very that's essentially pond what a pond way. is. You line it with plastic, don't you? So fantastic. So even letting things go a bit derelict. Yeah, is, all the little things do yeah. work. Fantastic. Okay, so when we're talking about all of the things that you do in cities, you have a specific team, don't you? Your Wildcat, Wild City Action yes. team. Do you want to give us a little bit of an overview of, of what they do and how you can maybe work with them? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the Wild City Action team started in 2015 um, and their main objective was to be a sort of practical workforce um, that goes out onto local wildlife sites within the city. So not so much parks, which are generally managed more for amenity value and recreation, but a local wildlife site or a, a site of nature conservation importance, um, they're generally there as more natural spaces, as wildlife refugia, and there are so many of them within Bristol. Oh, really? And they, yeah, absolutely loads. And they just, they don't receive the same amount of management um, as the kind of the big profile parks. Like in Bristol, we have like Eastfield Park and Victoria Park, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of these uh, local wildlife sites are reasonably kind of small. They don't necessarily have access to good uh, good access for things like machinery that makes them slightly easier to manage. Um, so we take our team of volunteers and we go and do lots of kind of manual work. I mean, obviously, because they're more natural spaces, they generally have much higher wildlife value mm-hmm. um, and they're just incredibly important for, for people and wildlife. So um, the kind of work that we do, it changes throughout the season. Um, so throughout the summer, we tend to do lots of hay cutting. So like I said, it's about managing wildflower meadows. Oh, so yeah. a lot of the a lot of the best wildflower meadows are on quite steep slopes. They might have presence of things like ant hills, uh, which means that they haven't been like ploughed up or reseeded for a very very long time. It tells you that um, a piece of ground has kind of been in that state for for a long time. Um, so throughout the summer, we teach people how to scythe. So you know the thing that the, that the Grim Reaper carries. Yeah. So <laughs> which that's is, quite a skill. Imagine that yeah. on your CV. It's really really it's quite addictive. You know, really? like people take people take to it people either love it or hate it and the okay. people that love it really really take to it so it, it i find it quite meditative really but it's a, <laughs> it's a cool skill to have grass cutting with a scythe and it's harder than it looks but once I, you've I think got it looks it, hard yeah <laughs> and it's the most amazing all body workout actually um yeah it's really really all good right. for you well it looks like i'm gonna try that in it's the summer. Gr- yeah it's great fun so yeah we do a lot of grass cutting with scythes and we've got sort of a small pedestrian tractor um that we take to sites and do the grass cutting with oh, cool um one of the really important things that the wild city action team does is we liaise with friends of groups so these are local okay. independently run community groups 
um, that look up, that help to manage their local green spaces. And this is something that the Trust and Bristol City Council are going to try and set up more of and provide more support for in the form of um, tools and management advice, you know, implementing management plans on each site. So our team of volunteers who are, you know, reasonably experienced and put in so much work will go out and meet these independent site-specific groups on sites and just kind of provide them with support and practical help. And it's just a really fantastic social event as well. It's like yeah, really lovely imagine. community cohesion kind of vibe to it. So yeah, lots of grass cutting in the summer. Um, we've been doing loads of work on a few sites in Bristol that actually have neglected orchards. Um, oh. Yeah, no, there's a really, uh, there's several sites, uh, Saltmarsh Drive open space in Lawrence Weston, uh, Stockwood open space okay. um, in South East Bristol um, and Manor Woods Valley uh, in, oh gosh, Brislington, Bedminster down, down those ways, uh, Southwest Bristol. Um, and there's lo- yeah, loads of undermanaged apples, pears, cherries. So wow. yeah, it's really, you know, orchards are really fantastic. They, you know, in the, in the, in the spring when they blossom, they provide pollen and nectar for pollinating insects, but obviously you've got that massive amount of fruitful. So they attract loads of birds like field fair and red wing in the autumn and winter. And, you know, it, it should be a fantastic community space. We're talking more about, you know, being more reliant on foraging for your own food. So we're trying to set up, um, we've we've run a few kind of orchard management training days learning how to prune the fruit trees how to look after them and just getting more people interested in that kind of thing right um other kind of stuff that we do we do a bit of woodland work in the winter um so lots of coppicing of outgrown hazel so coppicing is um similar to the pollarding like we were talking about with the with Mm -hmm. the london plane trees um but instead of uh cutting the new growth back to a branch you actually cut it looks quite destructive you'll actually cut a tree down pretty much almost to ground level okay but most trees this doesn't stress them out too much i mean when i'm not when i say this i'm not talking about huge veteran mature trees i'm talking about kind of like uh you know lower understory species like hazel uh, coppice particularly well okay if you ever see a tree that has kind of multiple stems coming up from the ground that is probably the result of a coppice oh really 15 years ago so if you you sort of cut a maiden tree down a tree that's you know grown up from seed and one stem what will happen is where you've made that cut so long as the the stump doesn't rot you will actually get loads of new shoots and new growth it actually encourages the tree to regenerate in a in a really really healthy way oh wow yeah so but i, I mean imagine it looks quite bare when you first see it does it, it does look it does look bare but i mean not only does it extend the life of trees pretty much potentially indefinitely because, really well don't quote me on that but it's a system of woodland management that the romans started um and essentially we did it because when you copy something the new shoots they'll grow up very very straight and they'll all compete with each other for light so actually it produces very very straight long poles which makes very good timber for making furniture and things so coppicing has uh, the practice of it has gotten less and less and less as we rely less upon wood as a kind of building material if you like um but actually the wildlife benefit of coppicing was a bit of a happy accident. So when you do kind of cut down a a section of, when you do cut a section of woodland for coppice materials, 
um, what you actually do, it's kind of similar to an old tree falling in the forest, is that you let loads of light into the woodland floor, which stimulates kind of a burst of new growth of all kinds of woodland ground flora. So think kind of wood anemone, um, bluebells, and kind of just general understory bits of bramble. It gives a structural diversity to the woodland that's actually really important for things like butterflies, beetles, mm. things that need the flowers to 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 feed on essentially um so yeah we do little bits of coppicing and, and it's a lovely thing to teach volunteers because you can get products out of it people take bean poles for their allotments um yes, you know do bits of wood carving that kind of thing and obviously for firewood as well so it all um, gets used in the end as well it should all get used in the end anything that doesn't get used goes into a kind of a log pile a brash pile and then you've got that other habitat which is rotting wood um which is really really important for loads of invertebrates and obviously when you know i've been banging on about insects invertebrates and pollination these provide food for you know pretty much everything else in the food web which is so essential yeah, yeah, the, yeah they're kind of the smaller the smaller the animal the less attention it seems yeah, to get in uh, in public interest but actually possibly the more, the important. more important it is yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> I think that's probably about all we've got time for today, Rosie. So thanks so much for letting me come and bring all my podcast kit to you and no, for giving us you. space. It's been really fun. It has been fun. Yeah. I've got I've learned so much. <laughs> um, so if people want to find out a little bit more about you guys and what you do, do you want to let them know where they can find you? Uh, yes. Not you so, physically, the trust. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, our website uh, is www avonwildlifetrust.org.uk um, but we also have Facebook Twitter and Instagram accounts um, and I think all of them come under the uh, guise of at avonwt perfect nice and easy to find yeah nice and easy to find great well I think that's it from both of us if you want to hear more from myself and Lloyd um, we release every week and you can find us on Instagram at for what it's earth podcast uh, we're also on Facebook and Twitter very easy to find you know what to do uh, and if you've got any ideas for things you want to hear about, if you want to drop us a line, or if you know someone that maybe wants to be a guest on the podcast, uh, you can just get in touch with us at forwhatitsearthpod at gmail.com. But that's it from us today. So thanks very much, Rosie. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.